The Rural Health Voice, Episode 53, The History of Conspiracies. Welcome to The Rural Health Voice. I am Beth O'Connor, your host. We discuss rural health issues at the grassroots level and how state and federal policies play out in our local communities. What does the Black Death in the 1300s have to do with how we react to COVID today? Historian Don Leach joined me to discuss the history of conspiracies. So welcome, Don. Glad to have you here today. I'm very happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me, Beth. Oh, absolutely. And how did you first become interested in exploring sort of the historical aspect of conspiracies? Um, it it part of being a historian is is you're trying to look at how people respond to to crises and situations and the stories they create. So it's always been a little part of my research. But uh, it was when uh, one of our co-authors, Wendy Welch. Uh, invited me to contribute to the book that I got specifically interested in, the ones around COVID. And why did you want to be a part of that book? I thought it would be interesting to do the research and writing on, and it's certainly relevant, um, really digging into how people are thinking and the way they are. And, and with the historical context, as a medieval historian, I've you know done some work on on the the plague and the responses to it and, and seeing some parallels between the two kind of uh, was sort of, I thought, interesting to explore and talk about. Well, let's talk about that. You connected the Black Death, which was an epidemic of bubonic plague, with how people react to COVID today. How does anything that happened in the mid 1300s impact public health in the modern era? Oh, that's a very good question, yes. Surprisingly, um humans have not changed that much over 700 years the way we try to understand things the way we respond to things are uh, even if we have different degree of knowledge we still act in very much the same way so people attempted to understand why the plague was happening and how do we stop it um coming up with scapegoats to blame coming up with conspiracy theories to explain the seemingly random or unexplainable. Uh, the same things in 2020 as were in 1349. Uh, even sometimes the same resistance to authorities or, or you know, scientific knowledge of the time. So the parallels are there. It, it's people responding in a remarkable range of ways. So looking more at that need to assign blame, why do you think humans need to be able to point fingers at a specific cause? Oh, yes. Um, I think we don't like things to seem random. Um, you know, a germ, a bacteria, or a virus, um, or just a random event that can cause so much havoc or, or suffering. So we want there to be a cause. It might be um, God, but people don't want God to be the cause of course of suffering. So we sometimes we're looking for who did this to us? Who wants to hurt us? So that, that need to find a, a evil plot, if you like, behind what's happening to my life, that I can look to them and that's the cause and then maybe I can do something about it. 
And you also mentioned resistance to authority. Something that we see now is people being resistant to wearing masks. Does that also have a historical connection? Yes. When uh, they attempts in historically to to do quarantines, very strict lockdowns or quarantines. Uh, especially. Uh, people do not like having their movement restricted or their behavior restricted uh, too much. Um, part of it is just not wanting to have these restrictions. And part of it is a, you know, a distrust of authorities. Why are you doing this to us? Why are you restricting our, our, our freedoms? So um, people then just push back. And although it's it's healthy to be skeptical of of authorities you know restricting things um a lot of it is just people and and it was the same in in, in during the black death like we're trying to quarantine a city and they're like no you're not we're all going to go out and do what we want anyway so there's a certain amount of people just resisting inconvenience um as well as you know resisting authority so do you feel that there's a a specific drive behind that resistance when you have public health people it's screamingly obvious wear a mask uh what what's the pushback against that yeah um part of it is don't tell me what to do and, and the, if we look around the the world and i'm not you know a, a global public health expert by any means but uh, there's been some studies that look at countries that have greater social cohesion you see a uh, where their society maybe it's more homogenous and and have a more community focus um they tend to have greater uh, uh, ability to, to feel comfortable following these these structures so yes we'll wear masks to help our the members of our community yes we'll we'll work together um Societies like the United States, where there's this very heavy emphasis on individual rights and individualism, there's this uh, very blunt refusal of, we're not going to do what you tell us because I'm going to do what's best for me, and a very low sense of of um, wanting to, to sacrifice for the community. We've seen that across the globe in countries that, that have handled COVID well versus those that have not done so well. In the book, you also dive some into anti-Semitism. Now, at least from my perspective, we haven't seen blatant large-scale anti-Semitism since World War II, but there's absolutely been an uptick in the United States in seemingly unconnected acts, such as the shooting of the synagogue in Pittsburgh a few years ago. But what does all that have to do with how we react to COVID? Yeah, it, it's that scapegoating element again. Um, in the Black Death, Jews were accused of of trying to poison wells and were trying, they were the ones that were accused of trying to kill Christians. And so there was this brutal persecution. Uh, fortunately, COVID, if um, comparative to the Black Death, has been far less destructive and disruptive, very fortunately. So the, the response has been less um, visceral less less violent but there is still anti-semitism has been around it comes and goes but it's always sort of there and there has been an increase in recent years even before covid with the rise of various um white power movements um, 
Christian nationalist movements since the 1980s in the United States. And there's been, like you said, intermittent acts of violence. And um, they've sort of been increasing in very recent years. And COVID just enabled them to sort of build up a, a new narrative similar to the old ones that Jews are trying to either profit from uh, our suffering by making money off vaccines or or um, economic unrest, or they're the ones that are actually producing the vaccine and trying to kill kill white Christians. So they sort of that that comes back to the uh, to the forefront when it's when it's convenient. So essentially, what you're saying is the need to place blame then reinforces that white nationalism narrative. You want to blame somebody for COVID? This is the group that you point your finger at. Yes. Um, the, the Trying to claim that Christian white, uh, Christian white Americans are, are victims of the New World Order, of a Jewish plot, of, of uh, racial um, filtering and discrimination. So they see themselves as beset on all sides and fighting, you know, for for right and for their existence. Um, some fringe groups like the Bugalo Boys, right, are trying to create a war. Some of it's end of time, um, uh, sort of Christian belief, some of it's race war to purify. There's a lot of complications in these in these movements. Um, yeah, so COVID becomes the, a crisis that brings these these fears to light, and you know forces it into into actually taking action. So it it became a proxy rallying cry for otherwise fringe groups. Yes, definitely. The, 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 a crisis really can bring fringe into the mainstream. Uh, Again, from the historian's perspective, looking at um, not only COVID, uh, we, the rise of these groups came after defeat in Vietnam and the chaos of the 1970s. We, of course, look at the rise of the Nazis. And I don't want to do too much of a comparison with Nazis, but after World War One, with the economic crises in Germany and, and the crisis of defeat, so a crisis, especially one that creates a lot of suffering and fear, can bring what would normally be sort of outside or very fringe ideas and groups. They can suddenly become very, very heard and much more powerful. And possibly drive other people to their banner. Yes. Yeah. They'll, they'll, people will rally around because these people have a message of saying, that's clearly stating, here's what's happening, here's why, and here's where we're going to fix things and make it better for you. We will protect you. We will help you. Yeah. Now, you said earlier that it is healthy to be skeptical. I was reading a New York Times article about COVID rumors, and a point that it made is that it's perfectly reasonable for people to have questions. But where do we draw the line between being, say, hesitant about receiving a new vaccine and believing conspiracies. Oh, yes, that's a very good uh, way to look at it because there is this line, if you like, or the or continuum. Asking questions legitimate. You need to know the facts. You need to say, show me that this is safe. Show me that this is the right way to do things. Show me that 
these rules are specifically for stopping a a a um, pandemic and not just adding to government authority. You're right. Show me that that you're doing the right thing and that this is the right thing. But the duty on the on the person who's asking questions is also to make sure that they're looking at good answers. That okay, questioning's fine, but if your questioning leads you into QAnon or other conspiracy sites, you're not really right asking questions of the right people, and you're not filtering out the information very well, and that's sort of the problem. Questions are good. People are finding the wrong answers from the wrong people. So how do we find the right answers from the right people? Ah, that's the million-dollar question. Uh, that's the one that everybody has been discussing for years, um, The right, with the Internet and other social media and other sources where there's just this blanket of massive information and disinformation is how do you uh, direct people to to the good information without censorship and, and so forth? And it's always been always a that's a challenge. Uh, we don't want to leave it to private social media companies to control the flow of information. Um, so I, that's one that that everybody's still fumbling fumbling about is how to how to direct people to the right the right sources um and 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 i think we're going to be fumbling with that for a while as long as as long as we're trying to have a free speech but but how do you identify it and i don't think and the crisis makes it work like i said people in a crisis look for look for the story that explains things look for the scapegoat so they're even more um susceptible to conspiracy theories than even in non-crisis times so unfortunately, I don't really have a good answer of how to get people to the right information, except trying to get it out there and trying to broadcast it very loudly and very frequently, perhaps. But, and part of the problem with science, with public health, is we don't necessarily have pat answers for everything immediately. And people want answers and if you're say testing a new vaccine or trying to determine if you should wear a mask or two masks or no mask sometimes answers that are valid don't get out there as fast as the rumors do right what was the saying a lie gets around the world before the truth has its pants on yep. um, right it's quite because we're uh, scientists and and Academics and scholars are trying to be very careful in what we put out. It takes time. Um, and meanwhile, like you said, information's filling that gap between here's COVID and here's how you deal with it. That gap in between, uh, you're right, that's what's filled with the misinformation. And and then we hedge. And then we change over time as, as we're learning how to respond to something like COVID, how best to deal with it from a public health and scientific issue. We sometimes change what we're saying, this is best. And then a month later, we said, actually, that might be better this way as we learn and move forward. But that change gets considered by, by a lot of people who are not really familiar with the scientific process. They say, oh, look, they keep changing their mind. They don't know what they're doing. They must have been lying. And the scientists get rejected because of this, 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 this process. Um, so I think, yeah, we need to be quicker and more clear on what we're doing and why, and filling those voids much more quickly. Sure. I mean, 
when it first came out, we were calling it the novel virus because novel meant new, and it was new, and we didn't know how to react to it. We didn't know how to treat it. We didn't know how to prevent it. You know, thinking back, you know, one of the first things that they talked about was, you know, don't touch anything. Um, and then we learned that really touch surfaces aren't all that dangerous. It's really being in proximity uh, with others because it goes through, you know, the, the particles that are in our breath. And for people who, you know, aren't in the public health world, I think that gets very confusing. Yes. And they begin to just reject the message, or if these scientists can't make up their mind, then they obviously don't know what they're doing. So therefore, we'll listen to the people who speak with certainty. And and people want that certainty, and, and, that, and that, that's the gap right there. Now, you're now the third author from the book, third contributor that I've had on this podcast, and, and we've explored, you know, we've explored the connection between racism and public health issues. We've looked at uh, anti-vaccine movements. You had looked into anti-Semitism, white nationalism, those types of issues. And for, for many people, some of these theories sound ridiculous to the point of being delusional. Do we need to take them seriously? Unfortunately, we do. I mean, for the for the, for the person who is informed or, or perhaps educated in science, we're like, what are these people saying? But we do have to take them seriously. They are filling in people's gaps. They are uh, working on people's fears um, and people's lack of knowledge. And they they can, uh, you know, create danger. So making fun of the people uh, just actually makes things worse. They get defensive. So we need to take it seriously and we need to take people's fears and uncertainties um, seriously and try to and try to work with them rather than just making making fun of it. It was like the um, there's a representative newly elected uh, who believed that the California fires of last summer were caused by a giant laser that the Jews had put up in a satellite. Yep. And it sounds utterly absurd, but um, it's feeding into, again, this this wanting to have a plot rather than just, oh, fires happened. And again, getting some anti-Semitism and, and, and memories of the Jewish community, even though it's an absurd story, are uh, looking and say Jews are being brought up in these things. We do have to watch this. We do have to take someone like her very seriously, especially as a, a, a representative in the House, House of Representatives at the federal level. Yep, someone who's making decisions on our public health policy and, and voting whether or not to fund those activities. Yeah. What else do you think our listeners need to know about the connection between history and society's reaction to a pandemic? We can look at history and not dismiss it as, oh, that happened before and those people didn't know what they were doing. We can look at history and look at the mistakes that were made, look at the the attempts that were made that, that to work. And even if it's nothing is exactly the same, certainly we're not in the same dire straits as with the Black Death, for example, but there are other pandemics we can learn from as well, such as the Spanish flu in the 20th century, is we can look at history and we can look at how people respond, look at how people came up with these ideas, realize that they are the same as us. 
you know, we haven't changed as humans, as a species in a few hundred years. And we can look at how we respond and how, and we say, okay, that's what happened before and we're doing it again. You know, we're repeating mistakes. And so you can um, the, the, hopefully learn from the historian as when we raise our hand and say, hello, we've seen this before, don't go down that path. The joke is that historians are cursed um, to watch people who haven't stood, studied history make all the bad decisions, and the, if they'd have listened to us, they may not. <laughs> sure. And I think some very clear parallels can be drawn between the 1918 pandemic with people going into lockdown and then something happening and saying, oh, you know, we, we can celebrate the end of the war or we can go to the World's Fair or whatever. And you see the resurgence because people uh, essentially let up on the caution. Yes, they did it too quickly. There were even um, eventually there, there were anti-masking groups that were refusing to wear masks as the as the uh, pa that pandemic went on. Very similar responses. People can only put up with so much and then they just say we're done with taking all these precautions and uh, and then we see the outcomes very quickly very clearly yes so anti-masking is certainly nothing new under the sun oh that that's that's certain uh, again people will will many people will accept a high degree of inconvenience but there is a limit to it and part of that is if you see that progress is being made against the the epidemic or the pandemic and you see that that it is going to go away and you see that the steps are being made i think people are more willing perhaps to to go ahead and and make these sacrifices but if they don't see progress being made if they see things even getting worse as they did this winter then they're more likely to just throw up their hands and say you know might as well just just let it go because my sacrifice isn't getting us anywhere. I think that's one of the biggest costs we've learned. Uh, we needed to make show progress um, much earlier, show some definitive leadership much earlier. And I think people would have been more willing to continue to sacrifice, at least more people anyway. We almost need a, a kid's countdown to the end of school calendar. If you, if you count down to the end of COVID, you'll get this far this fast if you wear your mask. Yes, yes, uh, showing that the end of school, you'll be free, yay, if you do this. I think that that, that carrot uh, can be more useful than a stick. So my last question, the question I ask all my guests, if you could do anything, what would you do to improve health and health care in rural America? Health and health care in rural America. Um, from my experience, a Profit-based um, system does not work because they're just, you know, the, the population density is too low. So you're just not going to have sufficient medical care. And I really think there has to be some form of uh, assistance, uh, expanded Medicaid, or some funding that comes in that can supply the medical resources that these rural communities um like i am here in 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 appalachia 
um, that they really need uh, these resources and they're going to have to be provided from something other than a than a profit motive. All right. Then. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Beth. It was a pleasure speaking with you. That's Don Leach advocating for rural communities receiving the resources they need to improve health and health care. Don is a contributing author for the book COVID-19 Conspiracy Theories. Check out the show notes for a link. If you want to be part of the conversation about rural health, make sure you subscribe to the Rural Health Voice on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or through your favorite podcast catcher to make sure you never miss an episode. The Rural Health Voice is a podcast of the Virginia Rural Health Association. It is sponsored by the Virginia State Office of Rural Health and underwritten by the National Rural Health Association.